This is Lend Me Your Ear. Conversations worth hearing. With Liam Halligan. Welcome to Lend Me Your Ear. In this episode, I meet Jonathan Tepper, co-author of The Myth of Capitalism, Monopolies and the Death of Competition. Tepper describes how America's gone from an open, competitive marketplace to an economy where a few very powerful companies dominate key industries that affect our daily lives, from health insurance to many consumer goods and also tech giants like Google, Facebook and Amazon. Every day, ordinary people transfer their money to monopolists and oligopolists, says Tepper, proposing instead vigorous antitrust legislation to return the US and other Western nations, including Britain, to an era when competition created higher economic growth, more jobs and higher wages, with more startup companies too. As a founder of several firms himself, with a background in both finance and citizen journalism, this is a story Tepper's well qualified to tell. I started by asking him why he wrote The Myth of Capitalism. Uh, two reasons. One, a very narrow reason, and the other, sort of a much broader, higher level reason. Uh, the, the narrow reason was that um, I'm the founder of Variant Perception, a macroeconomic research firm, and one of the things that we have is a leading indicator for U.S. wages. So it tells us whether wages will be going up or not about a year from now. And that had been turning up very strongly in our indicator, but wages just didn't go up. So what we had effectively were stagnant wages. Since and, the financial crisis, basically, since yeah, 2008. Pretty, absolutely. Pretty much. And, uh, you know, so it, it troubled me that our indicator was broken. And I also thought this is an important matter. If I can figure out what's going on in the economy, you know, why this isn't working, uh, it, it can help. But the, the broader sort of higher level um, reason is that my friends, I'd get me beers with them in London and they would tell me about Piketty's book when it came out. And I, I finally got around to reading it. But they were arguing that capitalism itself was broken and that when we had low growth, returns to capital would be much higher and returns to labor would be much lower. And I thought, this doesn't make any sense. You know, if, if you have a business with very high returns on capital, I'm going to want to start a business and compete with you. And, you know, that's how capital, uh, you know, returns on capital mean revert. And that's how wages go up as you bid for workers. And, of course, like, that was where my research then, then took me, trying to figure out why is this not happening. So the myth of capitalism, the title of your book, presents a thesis, not that capitalism doesn't work, but that capitalism is currently broken. Uh, yes. So uh, the uh, what's interesting is uh, I, I wrote the book and I called it The Myth of Capitalism because I thought that the current uh, expression of capitalism or what we see is what um, Stiglitz has called ersatz capitalism. That's Joe Stiglitz, the Nobel Prize economist. Yeah. So he, he wrote a, a great book, The Price of Inequality. And uh, you know there are many people who have critiqued capitalism. I thought what we're seeing right now is not uh, true capitalism. Capitalism involves one uh, private property, which we do have after 1989 and the, the fall of the Soviet Union and the Berlin Wall. The battle for private property was won, basically. Exactly. So, like, no, no one in the world, even, believe it or not, like, communists or North Korea really insist on, like, um, not having private property. The North Koreans are very thrilled to have private property for, like, the people running the country. They just don't give it to everyone. But the um, second part of capitalism is having, essentially, competition, which gives you uh, clear signals for uh, prices, you know, and so that's what essentially drives sort of production and, you know, helps us figure out, you know, without any centrally planned economy to figure out what we should do. And I thought that the competition element is disappearing, and it's due to the rise of monopolies and oligopolies, which creates sort of fewer players and a a lot less competitive markets. There's a great passage in this book which I really enjoyed. You say, late capitalism 
in post-industrial societies, if you like, like America, like the UK, resemble Soviet logic when it comes to consumer options. When Americans wake up each day, they can get their cereal from Kellogg's, General Mills or Post, who all together have an 85% share of the cereal market. At breaks from work, they might want a soft drink. The top three firms dominate, again, more than 85% of the market. After work, they may go for a beer. However, the Molson Coors and AB InBev duopoly now controls around 90% of the US beer market. So what you're saying is that because we have these monopolies, these duopolies, these oligopolies, three or more large providers, we're not getting the competition in ostensibly capitalist societies like the US, like the UK. Very much. And like the three examples that, that you just touched on right there are probably the most benign uh, examples, meaning that no one's going to, uh, well, people might die from drinking too much Coke, but you know, no, no one's going to be sort of terribly inconvenienced. Let's not test that, listeners. <laughs> Indeed. You know, th- those are sort of choices that, that you might make. The, the bigger danger for Americans in particular comes where if you have one or two or three options when it comes to your insurance market or your um, health care. And, you know, those are life and death matters where uh, companies have been able to hike prices uh, to exorbitant rates because there's no competition. And so it's not just those, but rather if you look at high-speed internet in the U.S., over 75% of households have no choice. So just industry after industry, what we've seen is uh, consolidation going on, less consumer choice. And then the, the book really talks about how and why this impacts the average person, whether it's through higher prices, lower wages, less productivity, fewer startups, and et cetera. Well, just crappy service, right? Oh, absolutely. Like you, you That's have, a technical term. Yes. No, I completely agree. I uh, had to deal with a British bank this morning. I don't know if anyone has uh, done that recently. I'd prefer to go to the dentist and have a root canal. And you look at a U.S. banks, and it's very similar. You know, you look at how J.P. Morgan is basically guilty of most major uh, crimes and, and, and frauds. Uh, and the problem is, obviously, that when they get bigger, not only do you get crappy service, but they're, these banks are not only too big to fail, they're also too big to jail, right? Which is that we end up corrupting politics. You begin the book with an incredible story, and and listeners will remember it. Back in April 2017, a doctor was physically removed from a United Airlines flight um, in Chicago because it was overbooked, and there was blood coming out of his mouth. The footage filmed by another passenger went viral. But actually, as a result of that, the share price of the company ended up going up. Oh, absolutely. So that that, uh, story was really the one I wanted to start the book with because uh, it had gone viral, i.e. it was something that readers would be aware of. It also provoked very strong reactions, which I thought the readers would appreciate. But what's extraordinary is if you look at the U.S., it it appears competitive, I mean, and not much, but it appears competitive with four companies. But what actually happens on the ground is that uh, companies have... Uh, what are called fortress hubs. So if you fly out of uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, American has close to 90% market share. Uh, if you're flying out of Philadelphia, American has about 85% market share. Uh, United has Houston. Uh, Delta has about 80% in Atlanta. And so what really means is that you know within sort of a couple hundred miles, you really have no choice you know as to how you're going to fly. And so they, these fortress hubs create almost all the profitability for the airlines because you have no choice, right? And that and ultimately, and with that story the stock went up because all the news articles then pointed out that these were very strong oligopolies and therefore you should be buying the stock, not selling it, which people did. It's what Warren Buffett, the legendary investor, calls a moat around companies, right? Protecting them from competition. That's where the real profits are. 
absolutely. So he said that if the if shareholders had um, shot Orville and Wilbur Wright, uh, you know, back at, in when uh, the aviation age was starting, uh, capitalists would have saved a lot of money, right? So that was something that he was in favor of. Um, but w- w- what actually happened once uh, the airlines got down to four players when they merged, he bought all four airlines. Um, so you know, Buffett loves industrial concentration, and and for him, you know, even though the, the airline industry in his mind for a long period of time was bad. You know, once it had that market power, he bought. It's Adam Smith who said that it's when profits are highest that societies are at risk of collapsing. Uh, absolutely. How can that be? So what's very interesting is that normally when profits are, are very high, it, it often is a sign of little competition. Um, and you've, we've generally seen these periods of extremely high uh, profitability at times of high income inequality. And one of the things I talk about in the book is where the phrase robber baron came from. So in the late 19th century, this was applied to uh, people like um, uh, Rockefeller and uh, Carnegie, so the, the big American industrialists. Um, but the, the term originally came from the medieval Germany, where you had these uh, barons who had lands, and if you wanted to cross their lands, you had to pay a, a toll. But of course, they weren't keeping the roads uh, in, in good order. You basically had to pay them uh, to, to, to use their land, and that was a very efficient means of transferring money from the peasants to the rich. And nowadays, if you think about the daily toll road of people's lives, these companies are extremely efficient means of transferring money from the average person, who generally is not wealthy, generally does not own stocks, um, to the people who do own stocks, and in the form of sort of shareholder dividends or buybacks. So you talked there about Rockefeller and Carnegie Mellon, the robber barons of the late 19th century. Of course, in the end, after a lot of people kicked up a fuss and riots and journalists doing their job, Teddy Roosevelt responded, didn't he? He had initially the Sherman Act before him, but then you had all the trust-busting legislation at the turn of the 20th century, breaking up the oil uh, syndicates, breaking up the copper trusts, the sugar trusts, and all the rest of it. What's happened today? So right now we find ourselves uh, at the, I hope, the end uh, of a 40-year cycle where uh, antitrust in the U.S. was dedicated to breaking up the, the large trust and, or, or the uh, sort of monopolists. For the last 40 years, since the Reagan merger guidelines changed, uh, basically a group of um, economists and lawyers from the University of Chicago, uh, led by Robert Bork, argued that um, you know, mergers were good because they created more efficiency, and these efficiencies could then be passed on to consumers in the form of lower prices. That was a theory. And so over time, you know, this is just sort of, uh, you've had sort of a a creep involved in what was going on. The conventional wisdom gradually shifting away from competition. Absolutely. So, you know, you could argue that maybe antitrust was a little too uh, vigorously enforced in the 70s. I'm not certain. But, uh, you know, it's a fair argument to be made. The problem is, you know, as you and I sit here and chat in 2018, four merger waves later, it's very much like the World Cup for your listeners, right? You start out, you've got like 32 teams, you're down to 16, you know, down to eight. And so in many industries, like the U.S. beer industry, which we just talked about, you're down to two, right? Um, Now, who knows whether they're going to allow one beer company to dominate the U.S., but it's entirely possible. Possible, given how perverted the thinking has become about sort of the, the wonders of uh, scale and efficiencies. Here in the UK, we haven't had a competition law since 1998. That's before Google and Facebook even existed. You're obviously a North American, but you spent a lot of time in the UK, of course. 
this is a book about America. Could you have written a similar book about the UK? I, I did become British a couple of years ago, so I do f- uh, feel very British. Um, Welcome. Thank you. Uh, it's an honor. And uh, so th- the truth is, uh, I, w- I would have written a slightly different book. Um, I think things uh, have gotten worse in most developed countries, so certainly in Western Europe. Um, and there's quite a lot of research that I point to in the very back of the book in the last chapter about um, how these trends are outside of the United States. Things have gotten worse in the UK in most of the major industries that matter. Um, but Banking's not- very consolidated, house building's very consolidated, telecoms, electricity supply. Absolutely. So most of the major industries in the UK are concentrated and have gotten more concentrated. Um, they're, they're not quite as bad as the US. Um, and one of the reasons why I focused on the US was that ultimately it's not just a US-centric view, but the US is the most important country because a lot of the thinking uh, regarding monopolies spread to the rest of the world, negatively, I would argue. And then the reform movement started in the US and then spread to the rest of the world. So I think if this fight is going to be won, it's got to be fought in the US. And you know, you have to slay the so giant policy there. and intellectual leadership, the big economics departments, dominating thinking, feeding into legislation. Absolutely. So if you look at like the European Union or, uh, and elsewhere, it is still very much uh, influenced by the United States. Um, and even the European thinkers post-war, um, you know, so Europe uh, claims that it has a separate tradition um, the, called the order, order liberalism, yeah. you know, so the order markets. Um, a, a lot of that was heavily influenced by the U.S. And there's a great book called Antitrust and the Making of the Modern World about how the U.S. essentially exported antitrust to Europe in the late 40s and early 50s. And the, the, the reason was that uh, IG Farben was the uh, giant German uh, conglomerate that uh, supported Hitler and the Nazis and uh, created Zyklon B gas, which killed the Jews. And so the idea was that, and it was actually written in the Potsdam Agreement, which is they needed to denazify, decentralize, and decartelize. So it was an explicit so big goal. Big companies aim. were seen as sort of fascistic in some ways. Absolutely, and you know, very, very much like China today, which favors uh, centralization because that way you can control people more easily. Um, Germany favored centralization and had compulsory cartelization laws, which I discuss in the book. And so the idea was, if you want to kill democracy, the best thing to do is to centralize power and force you know any competitors to have to, to toe the line and uh, and in fact uh, Carl Duisberg who is the founder really of modern uh, sort of Bayer and IG Farben went to the US in 1903 was un- completely unimpressed by Standard Oil uh, and the uh, US chemical companies in terms of their chemical prowess uh, but was very impressed by their monopolization efforts and on the boat ride back wrote a 36 page memo uh, which he sent around and the rest is history. So what you're saying is that if business gets too big, it's not just you know, bad for consumers and, and bad for sort of fairness. It can actually start to really shift politics into dangerous places. Uh, absolutely. Well, one, I think that it, it shifts it in dangerous places because uh, if, if you look at the 1930s, uh, which was a, a period that followed the 1920s, and 1929 was the peak in inequality, really, um, you know, normally... Uh, periods following extremes and inequality aren't very pleasant, you know, and the, the 1940s, you know, it was obviously a, a horrible time. I certainly hope that right now what we don't have a huge resurgence in, in nationalism and uh, in uh, dictatorships, but there's, 
there's certainly elements that we can see around the world that are very disheartening, and I think that that is a response. People feel something's wrong. They might not be able to correctly identify the causes, but they feel something's wrong. And my fear is obviously this will lead to, to in, in bad directions. Um, I think an, another uh, key issue is that um, I don't think this is a left or right issue. Um, sometimes I think the right in the United States has become very pro-big business rather than pro-capitalist and pro-competition. And even within the sort of conservative economic side, you have a divergence between uh, Hayek and, and Friedman. So early Friedman was against monopolies. Uh, and Milton Friedman, the Chicago School economist. Absolutely. So, you know, many conservatives absolutely adore Milton Friedman. Um, early on, he was against monopolies. Later, came to view it more negatively. But Hayek himself was always against monopolies. And the reason was, back to your, to your question, he thought that um, centralizing and concentrating economic power would lead to uh, concentrated political power, and both of those could be used against uh, citizens. And so it was a very conservative desire uh, for decentralization on Hayek's part. And he said, I would sooner prefer to deal with higher prices and a little inefficiency than with a loss of independence. Here in the UK, of course, we have Jeremy Corbyn railing against capitalism, asking some very, very tough questions. And in response, the Conservative Party seems split. You've got what I call the don't apologise, it ain't broke part of the Conservative Party, which stresses that capitalism always works and how can you possibly say there's anything wrong with it? And then you've got what I think is a more thoughtful branch of Conservative thinking, which is uh, it needs to be fixed. Every now and then capitalism needs to be rebooted. We had a rebooting in America after Teddy Roosevelt... In the early 20th century, we had another rebooting in the 30s with the other Roosevelt, FDR, from the Democrat side, talking to your point of this is a pluralistic uh, issue. What do you think should happen in the UK? What would you say to political leaders here if they listen to Jeremy Corbyn and they're concerned about what he's saying? I think that the uh, critiques have broadly been coming from the left, but I think that the critiques are valid. I go in in, in my book uh, into sort of the uh, current failings that we see in in many markets, and I don't think that this is a left or right issue. And the one in the conclusion to the book I point out, and I think this is an extremely important point for people who love capitalism and love markets and who are conservative to remember, is that if people who love markets don't reform the system. People who don't like markets and who don't like capitalism are going to do the changing and the reforming, and that's not going to be very good. Um, you know, Corbyn has some interesting thoughts and some critiques and questions. Um, his solutions, unfortunately, I think are uh, completely wrong and inadequate, and I think it would be a disaster if Corbyn, you know, were to, let's say, nationalize money industry, you know, all sorts of ideas that uh, he and advisors have floated. I think what's far better is to make sure that we can uh, empower entrepreneurs uh, that we can create competition, you know, which is, is good for uh, for workers ultimately if companies are bidding for, for workers and you don't have too much power in the hands of, of capital. And so there's all sorts of things that, that could be done to fix it in a way that's pro-markets. So what you want is an onslaught of competition law, an onslaught of antitrust here in the UK, as we saw in the US in the early and then the middle part of the 20th century. Yeah, so uh, I don't think that the solution is entirely antitrust, and I'll, I'll get to that in a second, what the sort of second element might be, and there's a chapter in, in the book on, on regulation. Um, I do think where mergers have made uh, industries less competitive, it makes sense to uh, break up previous mergers. I also think that it makes sense to prevent future mergers, because there will be another merger wave that's going to take the number of competitors and industries down further, which would be disastrous. Um, but the other big issue, one that I think 
think affects the UK in particular is, uh, in the book I talk about regulation. Regulation itself, and particularly excessive regulation, creates very strong barriers to entry. And so you can see this in the United States, for example, where you have the Dodd-Frank Act was 2,200 pages, and almost no new banks have been created since that was passed. Uh, The Glass-Steagall Act was 35 pages, worked very well for over 70 years, and you had, you know, hundreds of of banks, you know, if not over 1,000 banks were created during those decades. And so when you have massive government regulation, it essentially uh, prevents companies from starting and kills off startups. Startups don't have armies of lawyers, compliance, accountants, and so on. Um, if you look at what's happening in Europe, for example, uh, you know, obviously because the, the uh, UK has absorbed a lot of the body of law in Europe. Right, and uh, you know, Liam, you know about this very well. Uh, basically, you have like the top 100 hedge funds control about 90 percent of the assets because you know who can deal with Mifid, Mifir, and you know AIFMD and all these other uh, rules, right? But you see this in, in home building when it comes to, for example, getting uh, dealing with planning permission, right? Almost impossible. Um, if you're a small guy. Yes. And so what you see is that high regulation creates high barriers to entry and less competition. So we should just unpack that a little bit because there's some very interesting ideas there. We were initially talking about antitrust, which is the structure of a, of a particular sector, uh, the market share of each of the players. Regulation is the legal framework within which those existing companies actually work. And you mentioned the Glass-Steagall Act, which put a split between investment banking and commercial slash retail banking after the, the Wall Street crash in 1929, and then worked particularly well. You're, you're, you're looking at one of the leading advocates in this country of a re- restoring Glass-Steagall. Do you think the European Union has encouraged this over-regulation, which is stifling competition and leading to bad consumer outcomes? Uh, so I, I would hate to touch the subject of Europe in this podcast as it's not really something I'm, I'm an ex- expert Yes, I'm not an expert in or you know, really wanted to touch that uh, third rail. My, my broad sense is that uh, you know, the, the, the British are great bureaucrats and so ultimately if Europeans write laws, the British will regulate for them. Right? That's just what British people do. Um, you know, we you know, the, we the play par- by the rules, right? Exactly. I don't think large parts of Europe spend too much time thinking about the endless regulation that goes on in Europe. Seriously. Um, you know, and but you can talk about the European periphery in particular. So um, I suspect that what you see in the UK is probably a very zealous application of these rules, and you probably don't see that in uh, other parts of Europe. Um, I'm, I'm not against regulation, right? I'm all in favor of uh, cars being safe. What I'm talking about is essentially a principles-based regulation rather than a rules-based regulation, and one that is done in the most efficient manner, which encourages competition and new entrants. And I think that's really what has to be considered in terms of cost-benefit analysis. And let's talk also about the political process. When companies get really, really powerful, they start to grip government, don't they? We've seen in our generation, Jonathan, a lot of people that we we both know, they've gone from politics straight into business at quite a young age. Do you think we're in danger of having a political and a business class which has just become too close, too cosy, too intertwined? So I think that Europe and and the UK in particular are much better off than the US is. And I think that the reason for that is that there is a professional civil service in the UK. And so because of that, it's not a well-worn path to go in and out of government in what's known as the revolving door. Um, I think in the US, it's absolutely disastrous where almost all the top posts within cabinet agencies are people from the private sector, which obviously it's great that they bring some private sector experience to bear. And, you know, I, I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily. But 
when you get into the habit of doing that two or three or four times over a career, quite clearly the people running the FDA, are they serving the people getting the drugs approved or are they serving the consumers? If you're looking at the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, what happens is you end up with this revolving door where you know people have gone in for the last 20 or 30 years into private law firms to the U.S. government and back, and you have to wonder whose interests are they really serving. I think that the U.K. should do, would do very well to guard itself against that and make sure that, that there are uh, strong limits against when people can go into private practice and lobby against the you know people that they previously worked with. Uh, we've seen some of that recently in the U.K., and I think it's not a very good sign, and it, it leads essentially to what's known as a regulatory capture, where the entities that are meant to be regulated effectively have the highest level of interaction with the regulator, and the regulator comes to serve their interest rather than the broader interest of the public. We're sitting here in Westminster. We're we're nerding on about nerdy things. Why is this really, really important? Why do we need to save capitalism? What happens if we don't? You have the very high-level reason which we discussed earlier, which is essentially you have this uh, sort of diffuse or inquit uh, sense that something's very wrong, and then it, it leads to essentially a, a very strong and violent reaction. You know, and that's sort of the that's rising nationalism. Absolutely. So, and that's just one of the you know potential uh, things that happens. You might end up with racism or xenophobia, or, you know, blaming outsiders for economic misfortunes. You know, these are things that I think we we have to prevent by attacking the true source of the problems. But but even more specifically to the listener, what, how does this affect your life? Um, when you have concentrated economic power. What happens is uh, monopolists and oligopolists can raise prices, right? So you end up paying a lot more than you would for uh, goods and services. And also, you end up with lower wages, meaning that, you know, if a monopoly is one seller, but what often happens on the re- is that you often get one buyer. So that's a monopsony. And the classic example is, let's say, a West Virginia coal town or a coal town in north of England, right? You have one employer who employs the entire town. Like, you know, where do you think wages are going to be? Pretty high or low, right? They're going to be low. Because, like, if you live locally, you have no choice. And so this does happen in uh, many industries or professions where you have very few players. And one of the things I I point out in the book is that when you end up with very few players in an industry, they can essentially collude, they can uh, work together to, one, not compete very much on pricing and not compete for wages, meaning that they're not going to go out and, you know, vigorously compete for your your, your labor, which means that you're going to get lower wages. Um, but it also matters, you know, in, in terms of uh, startups and, and productivity, right? You're going to end up with uh, far fewer startups because, as, you know, talking about, uh, you know, barriers to entry, regulation, you know, uh, all, all these things become more difficult. But have a look at the tech giants. I mean, Google are providing a service that's free. Why should consumers worry about that? Well, uh, a couple things. One, um, obviously, the, under the consumer welfare standard, um, the idea was that as long as uh, prices go down, in theory, you could have a 100% monopoly, right? And that would be good. Um, I don't happen to agree with that for a variety of reasons. But I think that the, the second problem is that, you know, clearly uh, the Internet giants' business models were not around when this doctrine w- was written. And, and, and therefore, you know, for them to say that it's, it's free uh, is, one, very misleading, i.e. they do charge advertisers money and they essentially have a duopoly in online ads between Google and Facebook. Um, but secondly, it's not free. Um, I, I, I was just in 
San Francisco four days ago and uh, having dinner uh, with a friend of mine uh, who's at, at Google who will remain anonymous. And, you know, he, we were talking about creating an app that showed you every time you log into your browser how, how valuable your information is and how much you're giving up to someone else, right? You are giving up vast amounts of personal information to Facebook and Google. I can tell you that, you know, there is a price and uh, you're, you're not paying for it via uh, pounds anytime you log into your browser, but you're giving away essentially all, you know, Liam, you know, how old are you? What is your family income, right? What are your personal tastes and preferences, your entire search history, everything you like, what you see, right? That I would say that's pretty valuable, right? People get very annoyed when their information's hacked, right? This is what you give companies every day. And they're assailed day. with micro ads about things they've just thought about five minutes ago. <laughs> exactly. And the bigger problem I see with the tech giants is, that, well, there are many problems, but twofold. Uh, one is essentially that there is a massive arbitrage going on where you, you in particular, as a journalist, are charged with going out and collecting data and writing articles. And the people who get to monetize this are Facebook and Google, right? This is, you know, and this is one reason why what we're seeing is the collapse of the free press. You'll soon see this book, Jonathan, over which you've labored as a PDF being distributed across the internet for free, which hammers your book sales. Exactly. So what started happening with Facebook as well, you had these instant articles which are hosted on Facebook. Facebook gets to basically control the entire ad experience. They get to monetize the content. And so you've just seen sort of uh, a complete collapse in uh, the revenue to news producers. But Tim Berners-Lee, who was the uh, founder, essentially creator of the modern web, um, you know, by writing all the standards for the World Wide Web uh, early on so we could all have browsers, he thinks that the internet itself is dying. And I think that the date uh, in which it started dying was 2014, when over half of all traffic in the world started going through Facebook and Google. So in the early days of the internet, it was a sort of very lively uh, place where, you know, if you had a blog uh, and I had a blog, we'd link to each other. And then, you know, if someone else had one, we'd link to them. And you just created this very rich uh, sort of network of of links. The the problem is now almost all the the links are mediated via Google or Facebook, right? So if they decide you don't exist, you don't exist, which gives them vast economic power. And this political, cultural power. Absolutely. And people are waking up to this now, not just in the UK, but elsewhere. And I think that that's sort of a dystopia. It's the opposite of what the internet was meant to be, which is meant to be sort of an open and free place. And now it's essentially turning into a a duopoly. What can we do? These are very, very powerful companies. The five biggest companies in the world are all tech companies. And only one of them, Apple, actually makes anything, really. Yeah, so I, well, in the, in the case of the um, tech giants, I hope the U.S. government ends up uh, breaking them up. I think there are quite a few mergers that never should have happened. Uh, Google was able to buy DoubleClick, which was their main rival, um, doing display ads while Google did search ads. So basically, you know, that, that at the time was seen to be anti-competitive, um, you know, by smart people. Uh, you know, a friend of mine who worked at DoubleClick at the time was appalled uh, that it was allowed to go through. I think those will likely be revisited if we have a reform effort. Facebook was allowed by Instagram and WhatsApp, which to me was also crazy. They were able to essentially uh, completely consolidate the social space. And so that's on the, in terms of what legislators might do, but what can we do? Basically, if you don't want your entire search and life history to be in Google's hands, um, try something like DuckDuckGo. Believe it or not, try it. It's a good search engine. Works well. It's the only uh, engine that's growing market share. You know, you have uh, Bing and, uh, and others, smaller ones, but DuckDuckGo is very good. I recommend that. Uh, Facebook, there are loads of studies show that you're happier and, you know, live a more productive life if you're not on Facebook. You might try that. You know, but these are things that we need to do rather than get all of our information through Zuckerberg's algorithm or whoever Facebook decides they're going to list or not. And what would you say to people that say, 
you're not a real capitalist. You just want to control everything. Well, I've started two companies for one, uh, creating many jobs. So uh, right there, that's a non-starter. That's <laughs> exactly. I'm a big believer in capitalism, uh, and uh, I have a quote in the book by G.K. Chesterton, one of my favorite writers, and he said, "The problem with capitalism is not too many capitalists, but too few." Jonathan Tepper, congratulations on your book. Thank you Thank so you much. much. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for listening to my podcast. If you've enjoyed this discussion, why not subscribe at lendmeyourear.co.uk or using the iTunes store. Lend me your ear. Conversations worth hearing.